0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 44 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. After a series of hostile confrontations, Jesus offers a portrait of love and family within the kingdom of God. In it, he simply points to those sitting with him in attentive listening. Whatever it means to embody the lifestyle of Jesus, this much seems clear. It cannot be accomplished without knowing him. To know Jesus... You have to sit with him. All right, whether or not you happen to care for his films, uh, Martin Scorsese is easily one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of all time. So when the actors in his films do press to promote the films that they're in, journalists always tend to ask the same types of questions, which are things like, what was it like to work with Martin Scorsese? What did you learn from Martin Scorsese? So a few years ago, I was reading one of those stories. It was an actor and now director, Jonah Hill, and he answered the question about what was it like to work with Martin Scorsese with a really interesting story that resonated with me. He described uh, filming what was to be a very simple scene. I think it was a scene in which his character is on the phone and he's supposed to speak two lines of dialogue to a a voiceover track. And for whatever reason, it wasn't working. Scorsese wasn't into it. He did a few takes, uh, nothing was working, then a few more, 10 takes went by, Then another 20 takes went by, and every single time it was just cut, nope, let's do it again, start over, action. So Hill became became over time panicked, and he was freaking out. Why the heck is this not working? Why isn't he telling me why it's not working? His confidence was eroding with each take. It got worse and worse. And then finally, after 30 plus takes of this really simple couple of lines, Scorsese said, you know what, cut, everybody, crew, why don't you everyone take a break? And then he says to Jonah Hill, hey kid, come sit by me. So Hill walks to the director's chair over to where the little monitors are, if you've ever seen the, you know, a movie set, and he takes a seat next to Martin Scorsese, who then proceeds to just read a newspaper in silence, apparently for 20 minutes. And Hill talked about the way that he felt himself sitting there, at first confused and then calming down, and his pulse slowed And he started to breathe a little deeper, and he forgot what all the panic was about. And then after 20 minutes of just sitting there in silence, reading a newspaper, eating a bagel, Scorsese said, all right, kid, you want to try again? And they did another take, one take, he nailed it, and the production moved on. And as Jonah Hill told the story, the reporter asked, what was it about sitting next to this guy in silence that was so calming and reassuring? And he wasn't exactly sure. He said he only knew that somehow Scorsese's confidence itself was calming. In this situation, you know, he was kind of an up-and-coming new talent, and Scorsese is like this master of his craft. Hill was a collaborator in the master's vision. Something about sitting with him, even in silence, was calming. And then empowering. And when an apprentice is in the presence of a true master, their very presence itself can become one of the means by which the Master can teach. So with that in mind, turn to your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. After a long delay, we are back to our ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a while. Um, So let me remind you where we left off in Matthew 12. Jesus has been getting into trouble in the story. So on the one hand, everything that he's been doing has been sounding very nice. Jesus is healing the sick, if you remember the story, from fevers to paralysis. He even brings someone who was dead back to life. He's advocating for the marginalized. He's advocating for the people who are undervalued and unseen by the culture of his day, which were people like the poor or Gentiles, non-Jewish people, or even women or criminals, prostitutes, people that were often thought of as less than. He's valuing and rising in esteem, raising in esteem. He's driving out demons. He's pushing Satan's agenda backward. He's proclaiming the good news that things are, as of now, changing around here. That was Jesus' message. God's kingdom is breaking into a broken world. Hope has finally arrived. The days of death are numbered. So it's awesome. The story, anecdote after anecdote, is awesome. But you can't keep this kind of thing up without ruffling a few feathers, So, for one thing, Jesus openly claims to be the long awaited king by direct declaration and by inference. What's wrong with going around saying that you're the long awaited king? Anyone? Yeah, there you go. That's it. Peter, was that you? Did you help me? Thank you. And whoever else said that. Yes, there's already a king. So, that's dangerous. Jesus claims to be the long awaited Messiah of Israel, but he doesn't seem at all like the Messiah that anyone was anticipating. The, The Messiah of Israel was to become a kind of military hero who would overthrow oppressive Rome, restore Israel back to its place of glory. But Jesus goes around teaching nonviolence and enemy love. And add to this that despite Jesus' befriending of society's rabble, His sharpest criticism is reserved for, of all people, religious leaders who would be the pastors and Bible scholars of his day. So by the time you get to Matthew 12, things have begun to escalate, to say the least. And Matthew is, as the author of this biography, gathering ominous clouds over once exciting scenes of teaching and caring for others. And now we, the reader, have begun to realize, wait a minute, he's starting to get into trouble. Something bad is going to happen to Jesus. And the last few stories have been about Jesus deliberately generating controversy, and then He uses it as a teaching tool. So... Earlier in chapter 12, there was a story about Jesus quibbling uh, with the semantics of keeping the Sabbath with the religious leaders. And then Jesus addresses accusations that get lobbied at him about his power to cast out demons. And Jesus is always really shrewd and surprising. He's a step ahead of the religious leaders with his intelligence, his ability to turn accusations back on the accusers. So at this point, the accusers are super ticked off. They've had enough and they're prepared to challenge Jesus with an ultimatum prove it. So let's read the story. You guys ready? You feeling all right? Great. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now pause for a moment. A sign in this context is essentially they're saying they want divine proof that a given person actually did speak for God. So a sign is different than just an ordinary miracle. At this point in the story, there's little dispute as to whether or not Jesus performs miracles. Even the religious leaders concede to that one. Word is out. There's been all sorts of witnesses. The guy does miracles. And frankly, he's not the only one. Yes, there's something unique about how Jesus performs miracles. There's a purposefulness to his miracles, a subtext to his miracles. But other people have performed miracles as well. So a sign in this context is different. A sign came immediately from heaven itself. It was an undeniable authorization, not from some kind of like feat accomplished on earth by a person, but a declaration from the heavens, from God, yes, this person is who they claim to be. So let's look at what happens next. Verse 39, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I was like, Ouch, you know. Why the sudden accusation of adultery out of nowhere? Now, uh, remember, throughout the Bible, the prevailing metaphor for God's relationship to His people is what? Marriage, right. And in the story of the Bible, God is consistently depicted as a betrayed husband, as someone who is committed to an unfaithful spouse. So here in Matthew 12, the religious leaders don't trust Jesus' claims to authority and they say, prove it. Why should we trust you? And Jesus doesn't mince words at all. He says, you don't trust me? And think about it, for 12 chapters now, Matthew's biography has been weaving together story after story to communicate, listen, Jesus is who He says He is. All of those stories have put Jesus here before sneering cynics who say, Yeah, miracles, sure. Teaching with authority, whatever. Still, prove it. We don't trust him. One scholar I read this week noted, Those unfaithful to covenants characteristically seek signs. What he means is think of the way we often are most perturbed by others when they remind us of ourselves. You know, that thing that you get hung up on that drives you crazy about another person is usually the thing that you do yourself, at least in some way, because the guilty often find their guilt in other people. And sometimes it's not even there in the first place. You, you're cynical or suspicious of your guilt and other people. So Jesus tells them, look, no deal. It's not going to happen. Look down at verse, uh, the rest of verse 39. It goes on, but none will be given, no sign will be given, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that's weird, right? What, why, what, why Jonah all of a sudden? And there are actually a little consensus about exactly what Jesus is going on about here. There are three main theories about uh, what the sign of Jonah is is. The first is that the sign of Jonah refers to Jesus preaching. So if you know the story of Jonah, it details the story's namesake. He shows up in a city called Nineveh where he preaches a message of repentance, not unlike Jesus, whose message is sometimes summarized thusly, repent for the kingdom of God is near. So Jonah preached repentance, so did Jesus. That's the sign The second theory is that the sign of Jonah is the death of Jesus. Again, if you know the story, the most infamous bit has to do with Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, whatever that is. And here Jesus compares Jonah's time inside this animal to Jesus' own death and burial. Jonah in a fish, Jesus in a grave, sign of Jonah. But the final theory is that the sign of Jonah refers to the resurrection of Jesus. So, in the story, this great fish, or what's often thought of as a whale, pukes Jonah up, and he lives. He was supposed to die, and now he's alive. And Jesus, in the story, we know, but they're going to find out later, will conquer death. He will leave the belly of the whale, as it were. But but really, with all three theories, the point isn't Jonah at all, but the point is Jesus. And the point is that the religious leaders are already missing it. They've already been given signs and they don't see them. They have the evidence they want, they just actively refuse to see it. And the ultimate sign is yet on the horizon, the resurrection of Jesus. Miracles are going to continue to transpire. In fact, miracles continue to transpire in the modern world. People still hear from God. People still learn from the Spirit things they couldn't possibly have known otherwise. It happens all the time. Honestly, it happens here on a regular basis. Sickness is still healed all the time. Lives long dismissed as hopeless are brought back from the brink of death by the tender invitation of a miracle-working God. That stuff continued to happen and still happens. But if you want a sign from heaven, it is always and only this. Jesus is back from the dead. Interestingly, uh, this event continues to be the great foundation of our faith, as Paul would later write in the New Testament. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In other words, if He's not back from the dead, this whole thing is awash. But the resurrection of Jesus, the, the sign given from God, continues to provoke people As well, uh, amongst scholars and historians, the resurrection is a conundrum, and here's why. The Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, they all allege that Jesus died. He was executed by the state of Rome. Um, This is not really disputed, by and large, as a fact of history. For the most part, we agree on that, whether you're a Christian historian or non-Christian historian. What is disputed is the supernatural claim that after Jesus was dead, like actually dead, God said, nap, and brought Jesus back to life. He was totally dead, and then he was not dead anymore. So what does an academic, scholar, historian who does not believe in miraculous things do with that kind of claim? They usually could say, well, that, can't, that part can't be true. So you could just throw it out if you know that part's weird, so we don't believe in that part, but there's a big problem with that. The historians agree that Jesus was an actual person of history, that he amassed disciples, he had a following, which was ma- mostly made up of first century Jews, and that Jesus was executed. But they also agree that after Jesus was executed, his following not only persisted, but it grew. And that's the weird part, because his followers no longer held him to be a wise teacher and a prophet only, like, oh man, he was this really inspiring martyr, but after he died, they began to worship him as God. So that's weird. How in the world did that happen? Why in the world would a group of monotheistic Jews who believe in one God, that's not a person, by the way... Come to worship a peasant rabbi who had been executed as a shameful criminal. They gained nothing. We know that from history. They were persecuted. Many of them were killed. And not only that, the very men and women who helped grow the movement of Jesus would be the exact ones that would know for sure that he was dead. (laughs) So you can say that, man, oh, they probably just stole the body to start this movement or whatever, but that doesn't explain why they give their lives over to something they knew to be untrue and that flew in the face of everything they believed. So academics have real methods of trying to work this out. I'm serious. There's not no facetiousness at all. Some of them argue that maybe Jesus was like only unconscious on the cross. He was in a coma when he went into the tomb and then he woke up and he got out. That would help explain what had happened. Um, Some of them argue that the disciples did indeed witness a risen Jesus, but it was actually a shared hallucination that they experienced. That's a real theory put forth by academia, and I'm not honestly not mocking it at all. It is a conundrum. There has to be some kind of answer for it, a conundrum that it doesn't just go away when you simply say, dead people don't come back to life, so that's that. So, okay, sure, dead people don't come back to life, that's that. But then how did everything that followed come to pass? It's a really valid question. And it'd be easy for someone like me and in my line of work, you know, obviously, there's, you know what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> um, it'd be easy for someone like me to poke fun at like, oh, coma theories, hallucination theories, give me a break. But honestly, I sympathize. There needs to be a good way of explaining this, regardless of what you believe. But you know what I think? I think Jesus actually did live, he was actually executed by Rome as an enemy of the state. I think he was actually placed in a tomb to decompose, and I think he just got the heck up and walked out of that tomb because God raised him from the dead. I think Jesus said, you want a sign from God? Okay, stand by. You guys are about to see something real special. And, and then it went the way that it did, which invited the question, when the sign is given... How will the world respond? So let's keep reading. All that to say, back to Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus says, listen, the men of Nineveh, back to Jonah thing again, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is continuing to build out this analogy with Jonah. In that story, Jonah is sent to warn this evil pagan city called Nineveh that bad things are about to happen. But in that story, Nineveh repents and God forgives them. Now Jesus is comparing the religious leaders to wicked pagan Ninevites saying, look, they're going to stand in judgment over you. And it really is a jab, too, because in Jonah, the quote-unquote sermon that Jonah gives is only five Hebrew words, and they still repent. It's a really bad sermon. And these religious leaders have lived and walked amongst the teaching and ministry of Jesus for years now. They've heard his sermons. They've actually dialogued with him. They've seen people healed. They've heard the stories, and they will not repent. And Jesus is saying, look, a greater sign than Jonah is here right now. And the analogy is just really loaded with the dichotomy between Jesus and Jonah so that the religious leaders will feel the weight of their refusal to see what's right there the whole time, how much mercy they've been shown, how clear things have been. So in the story of Jonah, Jonah preaches for three days, but Jesus has been there for three years. Jonah preached to pagans, but Jesus is preaching to God's own people. Jonah was just a dude, but Jesus is the Son of God. Jonah's sermon was five Hebrew words long, but it, it, and it's nothing but wrath and ruin. It's like, in, in a few days, this whole place is going down. But Jesus, He gives warnings, but with grace and kindness and compassion and clarity. Jonah was a prophet, but Jesus is the long-awaited King of Israel. Jonah has no miracles. He just goes about with his little sermon. Jesus has all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders, and of course, Jonah, you know, though he gets swallowed alive by some sea creature, he lives. He gets thrown up and he goes about his business. Jesus will actually die and then come back to life. So he goes on, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So this is a reference to something that happens in First Kings 10. Someone called the Queen of Sheba in the story travels this really long way to meet with King Solomon, who was famous for his wisdom, and she wants to hear what he has to say. And Jesus is saying, listen, this pagan person from your story that you all know and love was willing to go out of her way just to hear wisdom from Solomon. I'm right here in front of your face, and you won't hear me. And this would have been even more offensive, because in this jab, it's not just a pagan, but it's an Ethiopian woman who is going to stand in judgment over the Jewish religious leaders of their day. And this is one of uh, one example of Jesus' trademark subversion of honor and shame. He loves to elevate shamed people to the place of honor and lower people of honor to the place of shame. So now we have count them three examples in Matthew twelve of Jesus explicitly stating the superiority of both himself and of his message. In Matthew twelve six, he's greater than the temple. In the book of the law, he says, "I tell you something greater than the temple is here." Later, he says that he's greater than Jonah in the book of the prophets, like we just read, and then finally, he's greater than Solomon in the book of wisdom. Now something greater than Solomon is here. Do you see that? Greater than the book of the law, greater than the book of the prophets, greater than the book of wisdom. In his commentary on Matthew, scholar uh, Dale Bruner writes this, in other words, Jesus is more than the entire canon of Hebrew scripture. As God's final prophet, priest, and king, he deserves humanity's final seriousness, the living faith of a repentant, listening life. So finally, Jesus concludes all this analogies to the Old Testament with a strange warning. Look at verse 43. He says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first that is how it will be with this wicked generation so it sounds a bit from left field in context Uh, And it makes perfect sense. In fact, this entire controversy began in chapter 12 when a man oppressed by an evil spirit is healed by Jesus. The religious leaders notice the way that this stirs up the crowd, how impressed they are, and so they attempt to discredit Jesus. They're like, oh, he can only do that because he is energized by evil spirits himself. So now Jesus is bringing the conversation full circle with a warning. And the idea is really simple it isn't enough to purge evil. You have to replace it with good. The lifestyle into which Jesus calls disciples is active, not passive. It's more than simply refraining from evil. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Discipleship is not for the lazy. So Jesus, ever creative, crafts this strange kind of haunting word image in which a demon is exercised from someone and forced to flee, and eventually it gets bored, apparently can find nowhere to hang out, and it wanders back wanting to return to its old home. It was a good one. And lucky for it, the person, they've purged the evil spirit, but they've done nothing to fortify themselves against further demonic oppression. So the demon calls his friends and he invites all of them over. Hey, we found a good place to stay. And remember, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders with the crowds in earshot. With both groups, Jesus is constantly issuing a challenge. Don't just listen. Do something about it don't just hear my teaching, put it into practice. And I find uh, Jesus' imagery so fascinating, the words he uses, uh, unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Another translation I read said, swept clean and tidy. Jesus is describing someone who's put together or well-behaved, religious perhaps, going through the motions, but they're empty. And that emptiness is is an invitation to the enemy. One scholar said of this warning, few realities are more vulnerable to demonic attack than middle-class life, precisely because this life is so empty, vacuous, and passionless. And he's obviously speaking hyperbolically, but he's not wrong. When we're comfortable and well-fed and well-paid, when we have health insurance, and renter's insurance, and streaming services, and social media, we get cozy. And coziness breeds complacency, which is a house in order, swept clean, tidy, but empty. And this warning comes as an elaboration against an earlier warning in chapter 12 when Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Which is nuts. One can hardly overstate exactly how hardcore, how exclusive, how demanding Jesus' call to discipleship. Whoever is not actively for Jesus is against Jesus. For him, there's no middle ground. Whoever refrains from evil does not practice the way of, but does not practice the way of Jesus, is an empty house waiting to be filled by evil. But there's one more piece to this section of stories. You guys doing all right? Still with me? Great, thanks. Let's finish with Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, meaning this is still the same story, His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to Him. Someone told Him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to You. And He replied to Him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to His disciples, He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, maybe that also seems like a, a jarring transition, but remember, in the original text, there's no verses or chapters. Matthew intends these stories to be read. In relationship with one another. And notice the way Matthew describes Jesus talking to a group of people. In context, he would, he would be teaching them. And ordinarily, this would be done with those listening kind of seated at Jesus' feet around him. In fact, in Mark's version of the exact same story, he explicitly says that's what's going on. It says, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. But in that same story, Matthew describes Jesus' family as standing outside. Matthew is surprisingly, using Jesus' family to depict another scene of indecision. There are the people that are gathered at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teaching, and then there are some others who are standing outside. One scholar I read this week said that those that are outside are Jesus' patrons, but the ones who are inside are Jesus' pupils. And there's a reason it's Jesus' family here that's juxtaposed against his apprentices, because in the previous story, Jesus warned the religious leaders that without repentance, without true faith, faith that's actually represented by a lifestyle of discipleship, even once wicked pagans would stand up in judgment over Israel. And here, Jesus speaks to a group who may have taken themselves for granted as insiders, in this case his own family, and he says, listen, that's that's not it. That's not enough only true apprenticeship. Verse 49 says that He pointed to His disciples, but in the original language it's actually more literally, He put His hand out over them, which is an idiom that means He blessed them. And we tend to read this and focus on Jesus' surprising and hardcore warning to His own family members. But something actually uh, quite beautiful is happening in the story. Jesus puts his hand out over those that are seated at his feet, and he blesses them, and he pronounces them his mother and his brothers and his sisters. In in essence, he's commissioning them as his own family. These are the ones who are, in Jesus' own words, doing the will of my Father in heaven, which is interesting because they're just sitting there. (laughs) Last week, we got home from church uh, on Sunday night and I asked my son, Beck, we were sitting there eating the late Sunday dinner. You know, if you have kids, maybe you guys are more responsible and you eat at like three or whatever. Um, we're eating the late dinner and I'm like, so what was it like in class? What did you learn? And he told me he learned the story of Martha and Mary. And I said, oh, that's a great story. How did it go? And, and Beck, who's five, he said, well, <laughs> he's like, Mary is just sitting with Jesus and listening because she wanted to hear him talk. But Martha is like a busy bee and she just buzzed all around the house doing chores. And I said, oh, it's really interesting. Which was the better thing to do? And he said, to sit by Jesus. So please listen to me when I say this, as simple as that sounds. To do the will of God, to embody an active lifestyle of discipleship to Jesus, always and only flows out of simply sitting with Jesus. And I'm not making this stuff up. It's actually here in this story. It's a well-worn idea down throughout church history across many traditions and theological systems. At Van City, we talk all the time about the three lifelong goals of every apprentice of Jesus. What's the first goal? To be with Jesus. And then to become like Jesus out of that being with Him. And then to do what Jesus did. But it always and only begins with simply sitting with Jesus. Like many of you guys, uh, my life, my calendar can become quickly and easily crowded, you know, with work things or fun things or family things or friend things or chores or errands, whatever it might be. So my wife, Abby, and I are both kind of orbiting and intersecting with each other in all this. And uh, lots of stuff we do together by design or by happenstance. Some stuff we do apart. But either way, we live in the same house. First faces we see every morning, last faces we see every night. And moving through life with an awareness of and proximity to one another is not togetherness, not in any kind of meaningful intimate sense. And we know this, of course, from story after story after story of married couples who after years, even decades together, split up or go on living together as strangers in the same house, glorified roommates. So Abby and I have to make deliberate, concentrated efforts to be with one another, to sit down and talk at the end of every day. What you know, what's going on? How do you feel? What's up with you? To read beside one another on the couch and simply talk, to have date night on a regular basis, to have romance and intimacy, all of that. Because I love Abby deeply because I know her. I know her because I have put, you know, some 14 years into being with her. Not just being married, that does little without the other stuff. Not just living together, you can do that without any intimacy, but cultivating a true and meaningful sense of personal intimacy and relationship. Jesus famously taught that if you love him, you will keep his commands. And it's so easy to read something like that and think of it as like rule-mongering, like that's how I'll know you love me if you keep all the rules. It sounds like a kind of conditional love. But when you read the New Testament, you realize that that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying that when you know and love Him, you will live into His way of being human. One is evidence of the other. When you know Jesus, you can't help but love Him. And when you love Him, you will do the will of His Father in heaven. And notice in the story the flow of it. Jesus is being hit with opposition from respected religious leaders. Serious accusations are made against Jesus. And despite all they've seen, all they've heard, they demand a sign, prove it. And Jesus says, no, but a sign is coming and you won't be ready to receive it for what it is. And at the end of the whole scene, here are some who are yet prepared to sit at Jesus' feet and listen. And Jesus in the story blesses them, says, These are the ones who are doing the will of my Father in heaven. Obedience, in other words, runs thicker than blood. To do God's will is to be closer to Jesus than his own mother, his own siblings. And that obedience is born from knowing Jesus, from sitting with Jesus. And here's why this matters jesus has a lot to say about obedience a lot to say about faithfulness who's in who's out it's really important stuff but unlike other religious moralities or ethical systems to keep the commands of jesus are never an end unto themselves you don't just keep rules for the sake of keeping rules i realize that things make a noise just ignore it we're all going to be fine don't nobody freak out or run around or anything The rules of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus are never an end unto themselves. One can only truly obey Jesus if they love Him. One can only love Jesus if they obey Him. And this has nothing to do with scorekeeping. it has nothing to do with attempts at perfection, it's not about like, oh if you love me you'll prove it and only when you prove it do you love me. Nothing like that. This. There we go. When in doubt, turn it off. Thank you. All right, let's let's regroup. We'll be fine. Okay. One can. What was I saying, telling you guys? Oh yeah. One can only truly. L- Uh, obey Jesus if you love Jesus. One can only love Jesus if you obey Jesus. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, oh, unless you get it right all the time, you don't even love Jesus at all. Or, you know, if you love Jesus, you would be getting it right all the time. Nothing to do with that at all. It's about a relationship dynamic. So here's an analogy. If someone were to ask me, why do you attempt, why do you even attempt to treat your wife well? Then I might answer uh, in that moment, trite but true, oh, because I love her. Is it that simple? Well, not really, because our lives together only thrive when we serve and sacrifice for one another. We're, uh, we're both happier when that happens, because we've made a covenant to one another. All of that is braided together by the simple idea of love, and in none of those cases can it be reduced down to this idea of love as like good feelings toward one another. It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And we don't pull this off seamlessly without error there's all kinds of kinks and errors and mistakes along the way but that's our aspiration we live and share our lives together giving that our best shot could we do that without any real relational intimacy maybe but it would be an empty exercise it would be a charade all effort and no cause in other words a house swept clean tidy ultimately empty so all that to say, why do the will of God? That is, why practice the way of Jesus? Well, because we love Him, because we thrive as humans by God's design when we embody the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus? Yes. Because we're happier, more whole, more integrated on a soul level, not a superficial level, but a soul level? Yeah, sure. Because we're in a covenant relationship when we decide to apprentice Jesus? Yeah, for sure. But in all of that is our love for Jesus. Can you follow rules without any real intimacy with Jesus? Sure you can. You can do that, but that is not the life to which you have been called. You've been invited into something far more beautiful. Can you have marriage without love? Sadly, yes, many do, but Jesus has not invited you into a loveless marriage. He's invited you to, in His own words, have life and life to the fullest or in another translation, the life that is truly life. To have your cup filled to overflowing, to have so much intimate love from your Father in heaven that it has to be pressed down and shaken together until it still runs over. For this, you have to know Jesus. And to know Jesus, you have to sit with Jesus. And there are all sorts of avenues for this practice. Um, Some of them are remarkably simple. To study the Scriptures, frankly, to hear or listen to and learn the words of Jesus, to sit under His teaching is a way of being with Jesus. To pray is to spend time talking to Jesus. To listen to His Spirit is to wait on Him to speak back to you. That's being with Jesus. But there's another simpler practice of simply sitting with Jesus Um, Christian mystics call it contemplative prayer. Catholic monk Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God. Theologian Greg Boyd calls it simply being present. And this is when, without hurry or agenda, you sit in the quiet and draw your entire focus to God to remember, remember that He is near, not far, that He's good, not cruel, that He's with you, He's not aloof. This last week... Uh, every single morning, for some reason, I'd sit down to for my routine, I'd read my Bible and journal and pray, and each time as I'd kind of near the end of my routine, so to speak, I would feel this uh, weird uh, hurry, hurriedness to get up and get to work. You know, usually I start my work day right out of that, and every time I would be like, oh, okay, I'm almost done, amen, close my journal or Bible or whatever it'd be, and I'd be getting up to go to the desk, and I would, I would feel a sense of You know jesus hand on my shoulder so to speak saying where where are you going in such a hurry why can't you sit still and sit with me for a minute so i would sit back down and i would take a deep breath and just try to be with jesus and i would sit in the quiet without much to say or do but bringing to mind the closeness of jesus and His affection for me, and in those moments, I would remember how much I love Him and why. The way that I remember my love for my wife when we sit down and talk, and I hear her laugh, and I think, God, I, I love this woman. Or the way I remember my love for my son or my daughter when I sit with them, and I hear them talk, or just, and when I'm close to them, and remember that they're close to me, and I see their little drawings or something, and I'm so filled with love that it becomes overwhelming. All in simply sitting with them and being with them, remembering who they are, remembering who I am with them. In the story of Jesus' apprentices, the first line spoken over their work, over their appointment, is this, He appointed twelve that they might be with Him. To be with Jesus is best. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.